What is the price tag for not following through on commitments? Well, the price typically depends on the seriousness of the commitment. What, would, what should happen to an employee who continues, faithful, who fails continually to show up on time to perform his duties? Imagine a surgeon who is no longer committed to perform surgeries with excellence. He often shows up to work unrested, and in some cases even drunk. What should be the price tag for his unfaithfulness? What should happen to a judge who is no longer fulfilling his commitment to stand for justice? Instead, he is caught accepting bribes that influence his judgment. What should be the, the price tag for his unfaithfulness? Or what is the price tag for the unfaithfulness of a husband to his wife? In each of these cases, examples, the answer is dependent on the seriousness of the commitment. Well, this morning I want us to focus on a similar question. What is the price? What is a price tag for spiritual unfaithfulness? What is a price tag for spiritual unfaithfulness? Now, some people immediately think of 2 Timothy 2.13, where it says, But if we are faithless... We, he remains faithful. We take this verse out of context and conclude that if God always remains faithful to us, then the price tag for our unfaithfulness will not be very high. So we're tempted to conclude, if God will always be faithful to us, it does not matter how faithful we remain to him. Do you ever think this way? Well, the book of Hosea and other parts of the Bible will challenge this kind of thinking to its core. We're in our fourth sermon uh, in the book of Hosea. If you have not been with us in the previous three Sundays, we have been studying a very difficult part of Israel's relationship to God. God commanded his prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute and to raise children from prostitution. And all of this God commanded in order to give a visual picture of, God, of Israel's spiritual condition. Israel has been unfaithful towards God. And last Sunday we saw how false repentance may appear as a way to repair such a broken relationship. But false repentance cannot, cannot repair this relationship. So at the end of chapter 8, God declares... Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. And with a sad note, in chapter 8, we continue our study of chapters 9 and 10, which will describe to us in great detail the price for spiritual unfaithfulness. I encourage you to open scripture, scripture to Hosea chapter 9. We'll read from verse 1 all the way to the end of chapter 10. Hosea chapter 9, verse 1. And if you're using one of the Bibles that is provided in, chair in, in, in the chairs in front of you, you may find this passage on page 788. 788. I will be reading God's Word this morning from the ESV translation. Here's the Word of the Lord. 
Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitutes' wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The day of punishment have come, and the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. They came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the things they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their prices, all their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them, because they have not listened to him. They shall be wonders among the nations. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their hearts is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down the altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? 
They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgments spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the ga- calf of Bethaven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. They shall not, they shall not war shall not war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness." Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon us. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. And Shalman destroyed beth on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed into pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Amen. It is hard to say amen to these words. Let us pray to the Lord. Almighty God, it is hard for our ears to hear what you have done to your people. Not because you are inconsiderate. Quite the opposite, you are a very loving Father. Yet you have done this because of people's sin and stubborn rebellion, even after you have saved them miraculously and graciously from their slavery to Egypt. Yet even after you have given them the land with milk and honey, your people still rebelled against you. Father, as we stand before this story, give us hearts that we would listen attentively and take warning for ourselves in our spiritual walks with you. Because you have given us not a physical land, but you have given us Christ. And we dare not continue to live in disobedience towards you. Grant us, O God, hearts that are tender to learn the lessons of the book of Hosea for us today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, the text we read today feels like watching a documentary of World War II. Seeing a long string of images that portray destruction. 
everywhere you look, pictures of destruction. But in our case, it is a destruction that God will bring upon the land of Israel. So much destruction, slaughter, deportation, enslavement, death. Yes, we are watching with our ears what God plans to do to His people because they refuse to repent. This episode in Israel's history is not a comedy. It's a drama. It's a scary movie. This dark drama in the history of Israel was a, has a huge prize, a huge price tag. The price of unfaithfulness is presented to us through two big pictures. I want you to imagine these pictures. Crashing the party and taking away the glory. Crashing the party and taking away the glory. Look at the way chapter 9 begins. Now, nobody likes to party, to, nobody likes party crashers or to crash a party. Nobody likes to have their joy disrupted. And yet, this is what God does in this text. He is putting a pause button to Israel's celebrations, to its joyful way of life, to its exhilarating religious services. Look at 9 verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples. Now friends, pause here for, with me for a moment. When throughout the Bible, we often see a call to joy, a call to rejoice, we need to pay serious attention to a text in which God says, stop rejoicing. When, when we read so often in the Bible, calls to rejoice, we need to pay serious attention to the very few instances in the Bible where God says, stop rejoicing. Why would he command his people such a command? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because of what's been going on in the time of Hosea. Throughout the book, God presented Israel as a whore. Look at verse 1. For you have played the whore, forsaken God. That's why you need to stop rejoicing. Yes, friends, departing from the Lord is a very serious act of unfaithfulness. So serious that God defines it as a spiritual prostitution. So the price of unfaithfulness is that God intervenes in your joy, in your party, in your life. And He puts an end to the party. Imagine God take a journey, a trip through 6th Street in Austin. God, the party crasher. Stop rejoicing. Stop partying. But he doesn't do it on the 6th Street. He does it in churches. He does it to his people. He does it in religious services. Now look exactly at what God, what God will do to crash the party. Six things in verses 2 through 7. First, God will cut the supply line for their food, in verse 2. Their material prosperity became to them an assurance that God must approve their sinful lifestyle. But friends, we should never see material blessings as an absolute sign of God's approval over our lives. 
Now, I say this because I often hear members, even of our own congregation, make the following logic, the following argument. Look how God blessed them. That means they must be approved by God. Such logic is very dangerous. Do you know why? Because of verse 1 in chapter 9. It continues and goes on and says, You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. In other words, we should not always assume material blessings as an absolute proof of God's approval because it is possible, sometimes, that those blessings were pursued with a price of unfaithfulness to God. Now, that does not mean that people who are materially blessed are necessarily unfaithful. Don't get that conclusion either. But the mere presence of material blessings should not lead us to assume God's approval upon our lives. Now, the second thing that God will do to them is in verse 3. God will evict them from the land. God will evict them from the land. Now, this is a very hard thing to hear. It is as if God is giving Israel an eviction notice. He is telling the nation, you must leave this land. Now, it is hard enough to tell a tenant that he must leave an apartment and move to a different apartment. Imagine the difficulty of God telling an entire nation that they have to exit the place that God has prepared for them. The price of ongoing stubborn unfaithfulness to God is incredibly high. It is as if God is doing church discipline on the entire nation. Now, we should not be surprised that God is capable of doing this. Remember how the Bible begins. In the book of Genesis, God created man and and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden. But Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He kicked them out of the garden. Now this was the paradise which God created for mankind. And God commanded Adam to take care of the garden. But because of his disobedience and rebellion against God, God kicked out man from paradise. Now in Hosea, God is excluding an entire nation from their land, from the land that God prepared for them. Now we may understand why cutting the supply line and why, cutting the, why the eviction from the land are such big issues. But look at the next three punishments that God does to crash Israel's party. They will eat unclean foods in verse 3. God is forcing them to, clean, to eat unclean foods. In verse 4, they will not have those necessities to bring offerings to God. In verse 5, they will not have religious services anymore. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival? Well, why is God punishing them by forcing them to eat unclean foods, by depriving them of the ability to bring sacrifices to God, and by making it impossible for them to have religious services? Let me, let me pause, and let's bring these three punishments in our contemporary life. It is as if God would say to us, Park Hills Baptist Church, 
you will be evicted from this building. You will, your people will lose all their jobs, so they will not be able to bring any money to the church, and the church budget will be zero. We won't be able to rent anywhere else. We won't be able to pay ministers. We definitely won't be able to, pay, to hire another associate pastor. Uh, we won't be able to do missions. We won't be able to do living nativity. We won't be able to do more potlucks. No more singing. No more Thursday morning men's breakfast. Nothing. That's the equivalent of what God is saying in these three verses to Israel. Why all this? Why will God not allow them to continue in their religious services? Because Israel's religious system became a trap for them spiritually. It offered the Israelites false assurance without searing their conscience. The religious services of Israel, their religious joys, their festivals to the Lord, offer them false assurance without searing their conscience. In other words, they engage in religious services, but their daily lives were not changed. There was no difference between them and the Gentiles around them. So by putting an end to these religious services, God is destroying their symbols of religious assurance. Now, the description of crashing the party ends on the final devastating note in verse 6. Look at verse 6. God is not only crashing their party and letting people go home. No, God is crashing the party and wanting to destroy the people of the party. That's why in verse 6 we're told that they will try to flee from destruction but won't be able to avoid it. What a sad ending. The landlord intervenes to the party turning laughter into mourning, bringing devastation instead of prosperity, and the people will try to flee from destruction, but will not be able to avoid it. God is a pretty good party crasher. Now, some of us have a difficult time with such a view of God. We, it's hard for us to imagine him, God, crashing our party. We could never imagine that God would order his people stop rejoicing. And yet there came a time in Israel's history, in Israel's life, when their sin was so great that God had to break their joyful spirit because they were no longer a joy to the Lord. Now, some of you may say, well, how do, I, how do we make sense of this? This must be the God of the Old Testament, but not the God of the New Testament. But yet, if we turn to James chapter 4, which our brother Jared read earlier today, God says there, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That command to stop rejoicing is found again in the New Testament, in the book of James. And how amazingly that earlier in James, God calls these Christians, you adulterous people. Friends, even in the New Testament, the children of God may fall into such a bad spiritual condition 
that they're called an adulterous people. And even in the New Testament, God is a God who continues to rebuke his people and call them to repentance when they live double lives, when they fall in the trap of duplicity, of hypocrisy, or when they forsake the Lord. We claim we love God, but we keep hatred towards others. We claim that we love God, but we go against his word in our daily decisions. We claim that we love God, but we only seek him when it is convenient for us. Friends, throughout the Bible, God confronts the unfaithfulness of his people, both Israel and the church. Such times may not be fun. They may not be the most pleasant thing we go through, but they are healthy because they are times of spiritual cleansing. That's why in James, prior to verse 9, James says, Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Friends, it is no fun when someone crashes your party. But when God does it, He does it to clean up our lives. Have you ever felt that in your life? Has God ever interrupted your party? Do you know why God is doing that? To get our attention. To understand that God is bringing judgment upon us unless we repent. Now, verse 7 through 10 announce that instead of joy, the days of judgment are coming because of the great iniquity of Israel. In verse 9 of chapter 9, we have the first of two comparisons that describe to us how great the iniquity of Israel was. Look at verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Now, this comparison seems to be very important because it shows, us, shows up again in chapter 10, verse 9. God says in chapter 10, verse 9, From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. Now, what happened at Gibeah that God brings this comparison twice in these chapters? This comparison may not mean much to us unless we turn to Judges chapter 20. I will not give you the full details of chapter 20 of Judges. Go home and read it. It is pretty graphic. But let me tell you briefly what happens. A certain traveler from the land of Ephraim, hear the connection, land of Ephraim, God now in Hosea speaking to Ephraim, was traveling with his wife who had been unfaithful to him. This man went to get his wife from her father's house because she left him. On their journey back to their home, the man and his wife stopped in the city of Gibeah and he was invited by someone to stay over at their place overnight. Yet during the night, the men of the city pounded on the house, asking the host to bring out the visitor so they could have a relationship with him. And the man, the host, pleaded with them not to do such an evil, but they refused. In a desperate attempt to save his own life, the man from Ephraim brought out his wife and gave her to them. And in the morning she died. And the visitor woke up in the morning, took his dead wife, cut her to pieces, and sent her to all the tribes of Israel to let them know what great evil was going on in Gibeah. Gibeah had become the Sodom and Gomorrah of Israel. Now for God to say centuries later that Israel's sin is as great as in the days of Gibeah 
was a very weighty accusation. Because after that incident at Gibeah, the whole nation of Israel gathered against Gibeah to destroy them. But the tribe of Benjamin, to which Gibeah belonged, took the side of the Gibeans. And God commanded the whole nation of Israel to destroy not only Gibeah, but Benjamin as well. So after three days of war, Israel killed all the Gibeans and exterminated almost entirely the tribe of Benjamin. And this is how the book of Judges ends. With almost the entire extermination of the tribe of Benjamin. That's why this comparison with Gibeah is so monumental. That's why in Hosea 9, 9, the prophet says, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. And then in verse 10, God compares Israel's sin or Israel to a vine with grapes in the wilderness. This actually is a positive image. Um, the, very, the only positive image in these two chapters. And you don't expect to find a vine in the wilderness with grapes on it. That is where God established his relationship to Israel, in the desert of Mount Sinai. It was a great beginning, but a short-lived beginning, because God brought a second reminder to what happened in their relationship. Look at verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But... But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Now what happened at Baal Peor? That it, it cut off the, the beginning, the good beginning that God had with Israel. The story of Baal Peor is found in Numbers 25. When the people of Peor invited the Israelites to participate in the sacrifices brought to the Baals. And the Israelites went to the party. They ate and bowed down to the foreign gods. So in Numbers 25, verse 3, it is written, So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And later we find that God killed 24,000 of the Israelites. For, friends, the story of Baal Peor is important because it points out a huge spiritual principle, which Hosea gives to us in verse 10. And they became detestable like the thing they loved. In other words, Hosea is saying the following. What you give yourself to, what you love, what you worship, you will end up resembling. What you give yourself to, what you love, what you worship, you will end up resembling. Another way to communicate this lesson is to say, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. More than that, what, what you, what, when you love and what you worship, you make common cause with it. So if you love that which is an abomination to God, you will become an abomination to God. If you love and worship that which does not glorify God, you will end up losing the glory of God. And this is the second picture that Hosea gives to us. The first picture of destruction is really a picture of God crashing the party. The second picture that, God, that Hosea gives to us is, is taking away the glory. Uh, this is a second picture of the price of unfaithfulness. 
that God takes away the glory of Israel. The glory of God will leave from Israel. Now, Hosea is not the only one who talks about this. The book of Ezekiel gives a powerful picture of how the glory of God departs from the temple in Jerusalem. And in Israel's history, during the time of, of the prophet Eli, the nation brought out the, the Ark of the Covenant in an attempt to manipulate God and to help them win the war. But God let them lose, and the Ark was captured by the enemies. And they called that day Ikabod, which, more, which meant no more glory. Now Hosea tells us that God's glory shall depart from them. Look at verse 11, and look at the picture. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. Now from verses 11 through 17, God describes what will be the physical manifestation of the departure of God's glory. God turns his anger against his children. Why the children? Why are the children at fault in, he, in this? Well, because two of the Canaanite cults that the Israelites began to worship were the, God, the cults of fertility and of peace. And as a result, God will punish the children with war and destruction. Look at verse 12 and 16. God will bereave Israel's children. Actually, it, we are told in verse 13 that Ephraim must lead his children out to be slaughtered. God will give the women of Israel miscarrying wounds in verse 14. And worse, God will kick his people out of his house. What a sad picture. Friends, what a sad picture. And we cannot sugarcoat this picture. The Heavenly Father sending out his children, putting, him, putting them out on the streets, handing them over to the enemy. God is sending out his children into the enemy's land to be slaughtered and destroyed by the Assyrian armies. Is God an irresponsible father? Not at all. Not at all. Well, many Christians have a hard time believing that God would do this. Many say that as long as you are in God's family, you can never be kicked out. Now, there's partial truth to that. If you are truly God's child, you will remain in his house. But God's true children do not continue in rebellion. They repent. So those who do not repent prove they have never been God's true children, but only pretenders. So they will be kicked out. And that's what's happening here. Look at verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. And Jesus says this in John. My sheep listen to my voice. My sheep listen to my voice. But those who do not listen to the, to the, sheep, the voice of the shepherd prove they're not his sheep at all. God will reject false pretenders who do not listen to his words. We may not like this picture of God. We would rather believe in a God who would never do this to us. But friends, my job as a watchman of this congregation is to point out the danger that is out there if we live lives of continual disobedience to the Lord. If we go on rebelling against God's word, when a self-professed 
Christian continues to live in unrepentant sin, that is a sign that he may have never been converted in the first place. So God will reject those who refuse to repent after they have been warned and encouraged to forsake the sin. And instead of being a light to the nations, Israel will be a wanderer among the nations because the glory of Israel has departed like a bird. And this is how chapter 9 ends. Then chapter 10 begins by describing Israel as a luxurious vine and yields great fruit. Yet this picture of prosperity turns grim when we find that the more Israel prospered, the more altars they built. And as the economy improved, Israel built more pillars. Friends, the, the pillars were religious places of worship that resembled the Israel, the religious system of the pagan cultures. But God will destroy them. Notice what Israel will grieve for in chapter 10, verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf, calf of beth -Avon. In other words, God's people grieve for the destruction of their idols. I think... Think on that for a moment. Does this sound familiar to us? When God takes away our idols, our flesh cries not after God, but after the idols he took away. We too have the same inclinations. God's judgment against Israel and his sin was so terrifying that the dwellers of Israel will have the following wish. Look at verse 9. They shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. They will wish that God's creation will weed them up, but it won't. They will live to see the great destruction God will bring against his people. Now, friends, this wish is so significant that twice in the New Testament it is repeated almost word for word. The first time it shows up in, 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 in the words of Jesus, on the mouth of Jesus, when Jesus is, is going to the cross and there's some women weeping for him. And Jesus says, Do not weep for me, but weep for you. And Jesus is predicting the time when Israel will be devastated again by the Romans. And Jesus said, And they shall cry to the mountains, call to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, destroy us. And that happened a few years later, in AD 70, when the Romans invade once again the nation of Israel. But these words show up again once more in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, where it says, then, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated and on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? So the words of Hosea and the destruction of the exile was just a rehearsal of what would happen at the end of human history. As Derek Kidner said, We can hardly complain that the last act of our human drama has been under-rehearsed. What happened to Israel in 722 B.C. was going to be repeated again in the first century in 70 A.D. But these rehearsals were just a warning for the real show, the eternal destruction that will happen at the end of history. The only difference will be that on that day of judgment, not Israel, 
But all those who refuse to repent of their sins and trust in Christ, all of them will call to the mountains to fall on them. God evicted his people from the land to show them the seriousness of their ongoing, stubborn, and unrepentant unfaithfulness. What is the price of spiritual unfaithfulness? How amazing that in Hosea 10.10, after the wish of these inhabitants is stated, God says about himself, When I please, I will discipline them. Now all this tragedy, the crashing of the party, the taking away of the glory, and the evicting of his people from the land, and the handing over uh, to their enemies, was God's loving discipline in order to bring his people back to himself. Now, some of you may think, well, this exclusion from the land is just in the Old Testament. The God of the, of the, Old Testament, of the New Testament would never do this. Let me read to you some passages in which God gave the responsibility to the church to put out of the church those who failed to repent after being taught and confronted in love about their rebellion. Matthew 18, 15 through 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. As for a person who steers up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 13. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, uh, rivalrer, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now these are just a few of the references in which Jesus himself and the apostles give clear instruction that people who claim to be Christians but who continue to live in rebellion and who fail to repent after being admonished in love to forsake sin, such people should no longer be considered members of God's household. And this part of the process is called, is part of the bigger, more difficult process of called church discipline. But such discipline is for the purpose of waking up the attention of people who are self-deceived and such discipline will always include the hope of repentance. Such discipline of evicting from church membership is only a rehearsal of what would happen to them on the day of judgment if they do not repent. 
Such a rehearsal is aimed to wake up those who wander from the truth. Friends, how gracious of God and how loving of Him to give His people such a serious warning mechanism. Don't show up to the real show before it's too late. Show up to the rehearsals. See what's happening so that you will not be surprised when the real show is happening. As these two very dark chapters of Hosea come to an end, we see the only door of hope in these two chapters in verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Friends, as horrific as these two chapters have been, here's God's way out. It is time to seek the Lord. And this is a message we should give to those who wander from the truth. This is the only way to escape the judgment of God. A friend, if you're not a Christian, here's the greatest news you can ever hear. In the midst of the message of judgment that you have heard today, so painfully, God made possible a way out of the destruction that he will bring upon the entire earth. That way out is through Christ. God sent Jesus to live the perfect life and to die on a cross in order to take upon himself the, the price of our rebellion against God. Christ died in our place in order to deliver us from sin and to bring us back to God. And if we believe that Christ did this for us, if we turn away from our sin through repentance, God promised to give us his perfection so we will not endure his righteous judgment. If we believe this, God will adopt us into his family, so he will be our heavenly father. So friend, I plead with you, turn to Christ, repent of your sin, and believe that God has given us the only way to be saved, namely through faith in Christ. If you would like to know more of what this salvation means, please come and talk to me at the end of the service. Now, if you are a Christian, the way to escape God's discipline is to turn to Him, to repent, to seek Him. And when we as a church are called to exercise church discipline, this is the call we are to give out. It is time to seek the Lord, to seek Him, to sow seeds of righteousness so that God Himself may give us His righteousness. Church, do we dare? Do we dare to warn those members who wander from the truth and call them to repentance? Do we dare to tell them about God's only way of rescuing us from judgment? Or would we rather be quiet and let them continue in their sin? Do we want to be God's instruments of lovingly warning God's people when they wander from the truth? Friends, even with this provision that God made for Israel, chapter 10 ends on a sad note. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. And it ends, Thus shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. How sad that despite the warning of judgment, despite the provision to escape the judgment, that generation of Israelites chose to continue in their disobedience. They chose to trust themselves in their own ways. Friends, I pray, and may God grant us the grace to respond differently as individuals, and as a church, let us pray.